All right, today we're going to talk about character flaws. Who here has character flaws? All right, well, that's good. I'm in good company. Um, we all know that we all have character flaws, whether it's anger, lust, envy, greed, laziness, complaining spirit, self-pity, anxiety. But what do we do about them? We all have them. Can we get rid of them? We can, um, we can go to counseling. We can read self-help books. Um, we can try really hard. And where does that get us? Well, if we could get rid of our sinful tendencies, then we would be perfect, right? We would have perfect people. But the fact that there's nobody perfect shows us that we cannot get rid of our character flaws, our sinful tendencies. And, but where does that leave us? We keep trying, we try, we try, we try, and we fail. And so we try again, and we fail again, and we try again, we fail again. And so where does that lead us? Depression, worthlessness, despair, self-condemnation. A little depressing this morning, isn't it? Well, today we're going to talk about how to break out of this cycle of, of condemnation and despair and how we can have hope. I have uh, four main points for us today. The first is, what is the context? The second is, why is there no condemnation? The third, how do we change? And the fourth, so what? What difference does this make? So number one, what is the context? Number two, why is there no condemnation? Number three, how do we change? And number four, so what? Okay, so Dylan read for us uh, Romans 8, 1 through 11, and it starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And to understand why Paul writes this, and why he writes it here in chapter 8, we have to understand why it's here in chapter 8, which means we have to look at chapter 7. We have to look at the context. And, you know, on the one hand, we can think, I mean, Paul, if Paul writes there's no condemnation for Christ Jesus, I mean, that's easy for Paul to write. He's like this super apostle. He's the apostle's apostle. He wrote... 13 of the 27 New Testament books. I mean, he practically, you know, and he probably influenced the other ones in some way. He was probably perfect or nearly perfect. So it's easy for him to write, there's no condemnation, right? But in fact, Paul did not consider himself a super apostle. He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... I am the foremost. Uh, some of you who know Paul's history know that he was quite a remarkable sinner before he became a Christian, that he was a murderer. He murdered Christians and sought to persecute them. And so you could say that, yes, he was clearly the foremost sinner. 
But that's not exactly what Paul is writing here because he didn't say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I was the foremost. He says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul still considered himself, even after he became a Christian, the foremost of sinners. And this goes into the flow of his argument in chapter 7 coming into chapter 8 that in fact he struggled, too, with sin and with self-condemnation. And where do we see that? Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul couldn't do what he wanted to do, the right thing, and instead he did what he didn't want to do, which was the wrong things. He struggled with sin. He was not just a super apostle. He was a super apostle who struggled with sin. Verse 19 says the same thing again. And verse 21, Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through 24. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul had come to his wit's end. He was tearing out his hair. He didn't know what to do. He wanted to do the right thing, but he just couldn't do it. And he kept doing the wrong thing. And he didn't, and he was says, who is going to save me from this state? I'm so wretched. He was in desperation. But in the very next verse, which is the last verse of chapter 7 and going into chapter 8, he gives the answer to his problem. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he gives the answer to his wretched state, wretchedness, which is Jesus Christ. But even though Jesus is his answer, he says in the next sentence that he's still sinning. He's still serving the law of sin. And so he still has this battle. He's still fighting to seek after God with his mind, but to struggle against sin with his body. And that is where we go pick up Romans 8.1. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, I'm going to be referring to this passage a lot, so um, it's not going to be on the screen always, so you might want to pull out your Bible if you haven't already so that you can follow along a little more easily, page 944 in the Pew Bible. Okay, so that's the context. That's point one, the context that Paul is writing from a point of desperation and it almost feels like Paul is preaching to himself in addition to the Roman church and to us that even though he struggles with sin, still there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that is meant to give us hope. This is supposed to be a hopeful passage because we are in the same state as Paul. We too struggle with sin and And in desperation, we don't know how to break out of this cycle. 
So, moving to point two, why is there no condemnation for Christians? And a corollary point, which is the answer to Paul's question, why is Christ the solution to his wretched state? So, why is there no condemnation for Christians? And how is Christ the solution to his wretchedness? Right, so Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but if Christians are still sinning, continue to sin, why is there no condemnation? And to understand why there's no condemnation for Christians, we have to review what Paul says about sin earlier in Romans. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what is this unrighteousness that, that, that uh, deserves the wrath of God? Paul explains that in verses, chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the unrighteousness of man is that we turn from worshiping God and turn to worship the created things, the things that God created. And first and foremost, what we worship is ourselves. We try to make ourselves God in place of God. And that's why God is angry, because we're trying to replace him with ourselves. Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul's saying we, are all, we all do this. We all turn away from God. We're all sinful. None of us seek after God. And so, and because remember that the standard that we're trying to achieve is perfection, which is what God demands as a holy and righteous God. He demands perfection. And of course, none of us can achieve that standard. Well, this describes both Christians and non-Christians, so why are Christians not condemned? And so verse 2 goes to explain that, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Christians are not condemned because of the law of the spirit of life has set Christians free in contrast to the law of sin and death. So we have to understand what is the law of the spirit of life and what is the law of sin and death? And so first, turning to the law of sin and death, what Paul is referring to as the law then is the Old Testament law. These are the Ten Commandments and all the other rules and regulations written down in Leviticus in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy. These are the laws that the Jewish people at the time were trying to keep. And they felt if they could keep these laws, they can achieve salvation and, and see God. But who was helping them keep these laws? No one. Keeping the laws required their own effort, their own willpower. And if you failed, when you failed, you had to offer a sacrifice, a sin offering, an animal. You had to kill an animal to shed blood to atone for your sins. And that's the reason why Paul calls the Old Testament law the law of sin and death, because when you sin, it required a death to atone for your sin. I mean, it's a little 
surprising that there were any animals left in the Jewish nation because you would think that they would have to be sacrificing constantly. Well, there's another reason why the Old Testament law is called the law of sin and death. And Paulus explains that in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In fact, the Old Testament law, even though the Jewish people thought it was there to save them, in fact, it was never designed to save them. Paul says that the Old Testament law was designed to show them that they're sinful and that they needed a savior. It's impossible to follow the Old Testament law, all of it, and achieve perfection. And so the whole point is to show us that it's a law of sin and death, that you have to turn away, that it's to show you how sinful you are and that you are headed for death if you try to keep it. Well, for us today, the equivalent of the Old Testament law is the moral law, is our sense of right and wrong. And no one is helping us keep the moral law except ourselves. It requires our own effort to maintain it. depends on your own ability. And when people judge themselves by this moral law, they typically think that, uh, and they typically focus on the good things that they do, right? When you ask people, when people ask, you know, if, do you think your God's going to let you into heaven? Or why do you think God should let you into heaven? People will typically say something like, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I do good things. I serve the poor. I, I do this or that. And they focus on the good things, but no one ever focuses on the bad things, on the sinful actions that they do, right? They won't say, well, you know, I, I only sin three times today. Um, you know, but... In fact, the question is not, what are the good things that you do? But in fact, what are the bad things that you do? Because we cannot, God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. The holy and righteous God cannot tolerate sin. So it's not about what good we do. It's about the bad things that we do. And we already established that nobody's perfect. So the law of so the law of sin and death is really, our moral law today is also our equivalent of the law of sin and death because it is not a standard that we can achieve. Now in contrast to this is the law of spirit and life, which is completely different. And it says in verse 2 that the law of spirit and life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this is a, it's a stark contrast. We are... Um, under the law of sin and death, but now the law of spirit and life sets us free. And how does it do this? And and Paul explains how it does this in verses 3 and 4. And this is also getting into that second question, which answers um, why Jesus Christ is the answer to Paul's wretched state. So verses 3 and 4, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Right? We already established that the law, the Jewish people thought the law was there to save them, but because of the weakness of our flesh, that law could not save them. And so instead of the law, God had to set up a different system for saving us. And so God 
is done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. And what he set up was by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins and fulfill that righteous requirement, fulfill that blood requirement, that sacrifice that required blood that, the, that they did in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus was our sin offering and fulfilled that righteous requirement. This, there's a theological term for this, which is called justification. And we are justified because Christ paid that penalty for our sins. And now, when God looks at us, he, instead of seeing our unrighteousness, he sees Christ's righteousness on us and over us, given to us. And so we are allowed into God's presence as if we were righteous. Now, this is, is this something that we did? No, this is completely external to us. This is something that God did. And so still, the, there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians on this point, except that Christians... Uh, except that the debt of sin for Christians was paid for by Christ, that Christians accept that payment on their behalf. For non-Christians, that payment still must be paid by themselves because they have not accepted the debt that Christ paid for on the cross. And so the solution, how Jesus saved Paul from his wretched state was that Paul accepted Christ's righteousness on his behalf. And therefore, he is able to enter into God's presence, whereas the non-Christians are therefore left to their own devices, which means eternal separation from God, from a holy and righteous God. So verses 3 and 4, now that we are justified, the end of verse 4, the second half of verse 4, Paul exhorts us to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul calls us to live righteously, to live morally in the truth of our justification. This is after we've been justified. Paul calls us to live righteously. And this is the same pattern that Jesus gave, spoke to the women at the well in John chapter 8. You'll recall that a woman was caught in sinfulness was brought before Jesus for judgment. And what did Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Jesus absolved her of her sin and then called her to change her life and live righteously. And note that Jesus did not say go And if you sin no more, then I will not condemn you, right? The justification came first, and then the call to holiness and righteousness. So just to summarize verses 2 through 4, we see the triune God in action, saving us. God the Father sending God the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to fulfill 
the righteous requirement of the law. And this is justification. We also see God the Holy Spirit setting us free from the power of sin and living in us, dwelling us to change us and to help us to walk according to the Spirit. And this is called sanctification, the process of growing in our faith to become more and more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not dependent on us. This is, in one sense, an inevitable process for believers who have been justified because the Holy Spirit is now in us and changes us. And we cannot not be changed by the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. If you are not changed, that suggests you do not have the Holy Spirit in your hearts. If we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we cannot not be changed. And that's why there is no condemnation for Christians because of the work of the triune God saving us and living in us, helping us. And that's why Jesus was a solution to Paul's wretchedness and there's no condemnation. All right, now we have gone through the context and we have discussed why there's no condemnation for Christians and how, why Jesus was the solution for Paul's wretchedness. So now we're moving to point three. How does this help us change? How do we change? Now, there's two parts to this answer, and the first part we've already discussed, which is that the triune God enters us and changes us. And so, on the one hand, there's nothing we need to do, and there's nothing we can do, and we are changed because of God coming into us and changing us. But on the other hand, there is, we are responsible for change as well. And this we see starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to set your minds on the things of Christ, on, on the things of the flesh, and to set our minds on the things of the Spirit? Well, to understand this, we need to under, uh, we have to think about what does it mean to set our minds on the things of the flesh. Now, the New International Version, instead of saying flesh, they call it the sinful nature. So, what does it mean to set our minds on the sinful nature? Now, we can all think of people who we think are living by their sinful nature. You know, we think of murderers, thieves, adulterers, child pornographers, and they probably are living according to the sinful nature. But it's also very easy for each one of us to live by our sinful natures too. And, and what does that mean? It's, it's not that you live immorally or you lack integrity, but that you think your morality and your integrity is defined by you. You do what you think is right. You are the ultimate arbiter, the ultimate judge. You are making yourself God over God. And this is what Paul already said in Romans chapter 1, which you read, that we try to make ourselves God instead of God. Now, you believe that there's an absolute truth, but that absolute truth is whatever you define it to be. If you don't understand or disagree with what God says in the Bible, then God must be wrong 
and you must be right. And we see the ramifications of this type of thinking, of this type of self-worship, self-idolatry, everywhere in our culture today. God made male and female in his own image, in Genesis. But today, male and female is a construct of the mind. And you can be male or female or something else or switch back and forth. Right? That is a consequence of self-idolatry. Marriage was ordained by God in Genesis between a man and a woman. But society today has redefined that as well. And the sanctity of life from birth is seen in the Bible. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I, created, I consecrated you. And Psalm 139 talks all about how God knew us and created us before we were born. When we think we know better than God, these are the consequences. And this only leads to condemnation and death. Well, in contrast to that, what does it mean to have our minds on the things of the Spirit? Well, that there's a good and loving creator God who defines what is truth, what is right. And even though we don't always understand God's definitions, we trust that God is right. And the standard is what God says in the Bible. But it's much more than just an intellectual understanding of God. You also recognize that you desperately need a savior, that you're stuck in this cycle of condemnation and despair. You see that even while you hated God, God loved you and sent his own son to die for you, to justify you, to save you. And in fact, saving you wasn't even really his ultimate goal or purpose. He saved you because he wants a relationship with you. God wants to know you, and he loves you, and he wants to restore his relationship with you. And because God loved you first, now you love God too. And you set your mind on God, and you have tasted and you have seen the glory and the holiness of God, and that changes you. You are now like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, instead of Martha, just doing, doing, doing. You think about God, you want to read his Bible, you want to know the Lord more, and you pray to the Lord. You want to live your life for him, not, not out of obligation, but because you trust that he knows what's best for you. And that's why Paul says, setting your mind on the Spirit leads to life and peace, where setting your mind on, on the sinful nature is hostile to God and cannot please God. Verses 9 through 11 emphasizes again the same point, that is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us who gives us eternal life. So just to summarize again, point three, how do we change? The first is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit changes us. And the second 
is that we set our minds on God and our actions often follow our minds. Okay, so moving to point four, so what? What does this all mean? What practically, how does this change how we live or change our lives? And let me just give you three suggestions. So what is, what is the secret to breaking that condemnation of despair? Uh, What is the secret to breaking that cycle of condemnation and despair? The first, turn to God. Recognize, just like Paul did, that you're in a wretched state and that you're unable to do anything about it. You're unable to save yourself. Realize that you are wretched and that you can't save yourself. And the moral law was not designed to save you. The moral law was designed to show you that you need a savior. It's not about the good that you do, but rather it's about the bad that you do. And in fact, it's even worse than that. Because the good that you think you do, you do to try to justify yourself, which is therefore against God. So even the good that you do isn't good. And that's why you have to turn to God. So repent and turn to Jesus for your justification. The only way to break this cycle of condemnation and despair is to turn to God. You can't do it based on your own willpower. And overcoming sin is not easy or immediate. It takes time. It takes the Holy Spirit working in your hearts, changing you slowly over time, day by day, as you set your minds on God, changing you to be more like Christ. This is sanctification. And it requires the work of God in your hearts. And it requires the work of you cooperating with God, working with God to change to be more like Christ. So the first is give yourself up to God. Turn to God. And on the one hand, this is a call to non-Christians to turn to God. But on the other hand, this is also a call to Christians to turn to God because it's very easy, even though we have been justified by Christ's blood, it's still easy for us to fall back into our old habits and old ways of relying on ourselves, of relying on our self-will, our willpower to save ourselves. And when we do that, we inevitably fall into sin. It requires our willpower, but we cannot depend on our willpower. Second, set your minds on the Spirit of God this week. What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to set your mind on the Spirit of God? Well, think about what you typically think about. When you have nothing to do, what does your mind go to? And think about the cycle of despair and condemnation from which you came, from which God saved you. Reflect on the beauty and wonder and grace of the triune God and what God has done for you to save you. Marvel that the creator God of heaven and earth loves you and desires a relationship with you. Trust that the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you will become more and more evident over time as you set your mind on God. 
And third and finally, what do we do when we fail? Should we feel guilt or shame? Do we fall under condemnation again? Is the justification of Christ's death on the cross only good up until the time that we become a Christian? And then from that time forward, it's reliant on us living a holy lives. No, of course not. The justification that God gives us through Christ's blood was for past, present, and future sins. We were unable to earn our salvation before Christ. We are unable to earn our salvation even after Christ. God knows we are sinful. God died for us as sinners. And God's love for us is not changed by our continued sin. Remember, remember the whole context of why Paul says there is no condemnation. Paul was preaching to himself. Paul himself was struggling with sin and had to remind himself, there's no condemnation for me. Why? Because of Jesus' blood on the cross covering me. And this is what we should do to remind ourselves today that there's no condemnation even when we fail now. So, whatever sins we have committed, we can have spectacular failures. There are many examples of spectacular failures. Look at David and Bathsheba. David, King David, adulterer, murderer. No condemnation. No condemnation. So, when you have, when you fail, you should feel guilt or shame only as it convicts us to return to Christ and to return to God. Satan wants to use our guilt and shame to condemn us, to hold it over our heads, to remind us of our failures, and to remind us of our sinfulness. But don't worry, God already knows how sinful we are. This is not a surprise to God. God knows that and still loved us and loves us and saved us. So when we sin again, when we fail again, it's no different. God still loves us and there's no condemnation. Repent from your sins. Return to God. Christ already died on the cross for your sins once and for all. There's no condemnation. So as we end, um, I just want to remind us that Paul wrote chapter 8 to encourage himself and the Roman church when they and us, when we struggle with sin. He started chapter 8 with no condemnation. And he ended chapter 8 with no separation. And all of this was to give them hope. All of this is to give us hope. So I'll close today with showing us, reading for us, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, the ending of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things that come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
We did not do anything to earn God's love. And we cannot do anything to lose God's love. Let's pray. God in heaven, we stand amazed because we just don't know how it is and why it is that you save us. Why is it that you love us? We who are your enemies and we hated you and we could do nothing right, but for whatever reason that we can't explain, you love us and you want to have a relationship with us and you desire and you sought us out by sending your son to die on the cross. God, it's easy for us to fall, to lose sight of that, to fall into our own self-will and self-doubt and to see how much we fail. And it's easy for us to fall into the lies of Satan, reminding us, hounding us, harassing us of our failures and weaknesses. God, help us to remember the work of you saving us, changing us, justifying us, and sanctifying us, God. Remind us of these truths. Help us to keep them in mind. Let them give us strength and encouragement and hope to set our minds on you this week and in the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.